0: Chapter Twenty One of Ancient and Modern Celebrated Freethinkers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ancient and Modern Celebrated Freethinkers by Charles Bradlaugh. Chapter Twenty One Baron Dolbach. Paul Ferry, Baron Dolbach was born at heidesheim in the palatinate in the month of january seventeen twenty three his father appears to have been a very wealthy man and brought his son to paris for the purpose of superintending his education but died while he was still a child in his youth dolbach appears to have been noted for his studious habits and retentive faculties and ultimately attained to some eminence in chemistry and mineralogy he married when very young and he had not been married one year when his wife died he afterwards obtained a dispensation from the pope and married his deceased wife's sister by whom he had four children two sons and two daughters Dolbach appeared to have spent the greater part of his life in paris and for forty years he assembled around his table every sunday the elite of the literary world including nearly the whole of those who took part in the first encyclopedia if that table were only in the hands of some of our spirit friends of the present day what brilliant anecdotes might it not wrap out the sparkling wit of diderot the good-humour of our host the hospitable and generous doleback the occasional bitterness of jean-jacques rousseau the cautious expression of opinion by d'alembert the agreeable variety of montesquieu and the bold enthusiasm of the youthful but hard-working if ever a table were inclined to turn this table should have been but perhaps it may be that tables never turn when reason is the ruler of those who sit around it seems more than probable that dolbach at first held opinions differing widely from those entertained by him during the later periods of his life and it is asserted that diderot contributed much to this change of opinion dolbach was an amiable man of the world fond of amusement and without pretension he was notwithstanding well versed in roman and grecian literature mathematics chemistry botany and modern languages he was generous to everyone i content myself he said with performing the disagreeable character of benefactor when i am forced to do it i do not wish to be repaid by money but i am pleased when i meet with some little gratitude if it be only as proving that the persons i have assisted were such sort of men as i desired Although about forty-five works are now ascribed to Dolbach, not one of them was published during his lifetime in his own name. The manuscripts were taken to Amsterdam by Nijon, and there printed by Michael Ray. Dolbach never talked publicly of his literary productions himself, and his secrets seem to have been well kept by his friends. Several of the works were condemned and suppressed by the government but d'olbach lived unsuspected and unmolested the expression used by the avocat general Seguier in his Requistoire against the system of nature is worthy of notice the avocat general says the restless spirit of infidelity inimical to all dependence endeavors to overthrow all political constitutions Its wishes will not be satisfied until it has destroyed the necessary inequality of rank and condition, and until it has degraded the majesty of kings, and rendered their authority subordinate to the caprices of the mob. Note the three words we have italicized. For the first read unnecessary, for the second voice, for the third peoples. We trust that free thought never will be satisfied until it has destroyed the unnecessary inequalities of rank and condition, and rendered it impossible for the authority of kings to be enforced in opposition to the voice of the people. The following description of Dolbach is given in a little sketch, published by Mr. Watson in 1834, as taken from Grimm's Correspondence. Dulbach's features were, taken separately, regular, and even handsome, yet he was not a handsome man. His forehead, large and open like that of Diderot, indicated a vast and capacious mind, but his forehead, having fewer sinuosities, less roundness than Diderot's, announced less warmth, less energy, and less fecundity of ideas. A craniologist would say that in both Dahlbach and Diderot the philosophical organs were largely developed, but that Diderot excelled in ideality. Dahlbach's countenance only indicated mildness, and the habitual sincerity of his mind. He was incapable of personal hatred. Though he detested priests and Jesuits, and all other supporters of despotism and superstition, and though when speaking of such people his mildness and good temper were sometimes transformed into bitterness and irritability yet it affirmed that when the jesuits were expelled from france dolbach regarded them as objects of commiseration and of pity and afforded them pecuniary assistance the titles of dolbach's works may be found in barbier's dictionary of anonymous works and in st article of the biographie universelle so in the little tract before mentioned as published by j watson dolbach contributed largely to the first french encyclopedia and other works of a like character on the system of nature we have already spoken and shall rather leave our readers to the work itself than take up more space in discussing its authorship after having lived a life of comfort in affluent circumstances and always surrounded by a large circle of the best men of the day dolbach died on january the twenty first seventeen eighty nine being then sixty-six years of age the priests have never pictured to us any scene of horror in relation to his dying moments the good old man died cheered and supported in his last struggle by those men whom he had many times assisted in the hard fighting of the battle of life j a naixion who had been his friend for thirty years paid an eloquent tribute to dolbach's memory in an article which appeared in the journal de paris of february the ninth seventeen eighty nine and we are not aware that any man has ever written anything against Holbach's personal character. Extracts from the System of Nature Although we may not attempt to express a decided opinion as to the authorship of Le Système de la Nature, we feel it our duty to present some of its principal arguments to the consideration of our readers. The author opens his work with this passage man always deceives himself when he abandons experience to follow imaginary systems he is the work of nature he exists in nature he is submitted to her laws he cannot deliver himself from them he cannot step beyond them even in thought it is in vain his mind would spring forward beyond the visible world An imperious necessity ever compels his return for a being formed by nature who is circumscribed by her laws there exists nothing beyond the great whole of which he forms a part of which he experiences the influence the beings his imagination pictures as above nature or distinguished from her are always chimeras formed after that which he has already seen but of which it is utterly impossible he should ever form any correct idea either as to the place they occupy or their manner of acting for him there is not there can be nothing out of that nature which includes all beings instead therefore of seeking out of the world he inhabits for beings who can procure him a happiness denied by nature Let him study this nature, learn her laws, contemplate her energies, observe the immutable rules by which she acts. Speaking of the theological delusions under which many men labor, and of the mode in which man has been surrounded by those delusions, he says, His ignorance has made him credulous. His curiosity made him swallow large draughts of the marvelous, time confirmed him in his opinions and he passed his conjectures from race to race for realities a tyrannical power maintained him in his motions because by those alone could society be enslaved it was in vain that some faint glimmerings of nature occasionally attempted the recall of his reason that slight coruscations of experience sometimes threw his darkness into light the interest of the few was bottomed on his enthusiasm their pre-eminence depended on his love of the wonderful their very existence rested on the solidity of his ignorance they consequently suffered no opportunity to escape of smothering even the lambent flame The many were thus first deceived into credulity, then coerced into submission. At length the whole science of man became a confused mass of darkness, falsehood, and contradictions, with here and there a feeble ray of truth, furnished by that nature of which he can never entirely divest himself because without his knowledge his necessities are continually bringing him back to her resources having stated that by nature he means the great whole our author complains of those who assert that matter is senseless inanimate unintelligent etc and says experience proves to us that the matter which we regard as inert or dead assumes action intelligence and life when it is combined in a certain way if flour be wetted with water and the mixture closed up it will be found after some little lapse of time by the aid of a microscope to have produced organized beings that enjoy life of which the water and the flower were believed incapable it is thus that inanimate matter can pass into life or animate matter which is in itself only an assemblage of motion reasoning from analogy which the philosophers of the present day hold perfectly compatible the production of a man independent of the ordinary means would not be more marvellous than that of an insect with flour and water fermentation and putrefaction evidently produce living animals we have here the principle with proper materials principles can always be brought into action that generation which is styled equivocal is only so for those who do not reflect or who do not permit themselves attentively to observe the operations of nature this passage is much ridiculed by voltaire who asserts that it is founded on some experiments made by one needham who placed some rye meal in well-corked bottles and some boiled mutton gravy in other bottles and found that eels were produced in each we do not know sufficient of the history of needham's experiments either to affirm or deny their authenticity but we feel bound to remind our readers of the much decried experiments conducted by mr cross and which were afterwards verified by mr weeks of sandwich in these cases insects were produced by the action of a powerful voltaic battery upon a saturated solution of silicate of potash and upon ferrocyanurate of potassium the insects were a species of acaris minute and semi-transparent and furnished with long bristles which could only be seen by the aid of the microscope the sixth chapter treats of man and the author thus answers the question what is man we say he is a material being organized after a peculiar manner conformed to a certain mode of thinking of feeling capable of modification in certain modes peculiar to himself to his organization to that particular combination of matter which is found assembled in him if again it be asked what origin we give to beings of the human species we reply that like all other beings man is a production of nature who resembles them in some respects and finds himself submitted to the same laws who differs from them in other respects and follows particular laws determined by the diversity of his conformation If then it be demanded whence came man, we answer, our experience on this head does not capacitate us to resolve the question, but that it cannot interest us, as it suffices for us to know that man exists, that he is so constituted as to be competent to the effects we witness. In the seventh chapter, the author, treating of the soul and spirit, says... THE DOCTRINE OF SPIRITUALITY, SUCH AS IT NOW EXISTS, OFFERS NOTHING BUT VAGUE IDEAS, OR, RATHER, IS THE ABSENCE OF ALL IDEAS. WHAT DOES IT PRESENT TO THE MIND BUT A SUBSTANCE WHICH POSSESSES NOTHING OF WHICH OUR SENSES ENABLE US TO HAVE A KNOWLEDGE? CAN IT BE TRUTH THAT MAN IS ABLE TO FIGURE TO HIMSELF A BEING NOT MATERIAL, HAVING NEITHER EXTENT NOR PARTS? which nevertheless acts upon matter without having any point of contact, any kind of analogy with it, and which itself receives the impulse of matter by means of material organs, which announce to it the presence of other beings? Is it possible to conceive the union of the soul with the body to comprehend how this material body can bind, enclose, constrain, determine a fugitive being, which escapes all our senses. Is it honest, is it plain dealing, to solve these difficulties by saying, there is a mystery in them, that they are the effects of a power more inconceivable than the human soul, that its mode of acting, however concealed from our view, When to resolve these problems man is obliged to have recourse to miracles, to make the divinity interfere, does he not avow his own ignorance? When notwithstanding the ignorance he is thus obliged to avow by availing himself of the divine agency, he tells us this immaterial substance, this soul, shall experience the action of the element of fire which he allows to be material. When he confidently says, this soul shall be burnt, shall suffer in purgatory, have we not a right to believe that either he has a design to deceive us, or else that he does not himself understand that which he is so anxious we shall take upon his word? The ninth chapter, after treating of the diversity of the intellectual faculties, proceeds MAN AT HIS BIRTH BRINGS WITH HIM INTO THE WORLD NOTHING BUT THE NECESSITY OF CONSERVING HIMSELF, OF RENDERING HIS EXISTENCE HAPPY. INSTRUCTIONS, EXAMPLES, THE CUSTOM OF THE WORLD PRESENT HIM WITH THE MEANS, EITHER REAL OR IMAGINARY, OF ACHIEVING IT. HABIT PROCURES FOR HIM THE FACILITY OF EMPLOYING THESE MEANS. IN ORDER THAT MAN MAY BECOME VIRTUOUS, It is absolutely requisite that he should have an interest, that he should find advantages in practising virtue. For this end, it is necessary that education should implant in him reasonable ideas, that public opinion should lean towards virtue as the most desirable good, that example should point it out as the object most worthy of esteem that government should faithfully recompense, should regularly reward it, that honor should always accompany its practice, that vice should constantly be despised, that crime should invariably be punished. Is virtue in this situation amongst men? Does the education of man infuse into him just, faithful ideas of happiness, true notions of virtue? dispositions really favourable to the beings with whom he is to live? The examples spread before him, are they suitable to innocence of manners? Are they calculated to make him respect decency, to cause him to love probity, to practise honesty, to value good faith, to esteem equity, to revere conjugal fidelity, to observe exactitude, In fulfilling his duties religion which alone pretends to regulate his manners does it render him sociable does it make him pacific does it teach him to be humane the arbiters the sovereigns of society are they faithful in recompensing punctual in rewarding those who have best served their country IN PUNISHING THOSE WHO HAVE PILLAGED, WHO HAVE ROBBED, WHO HAVE PLUNDERED, WHO HAVE DIVIDED, WHO HAVE RUINED IT. JUSTICE, DOES SHE HOLD HER SCALES WITH A FIRM, WITH AN EVEN HAND, BETWEEN ALL THE CITIZENS OF THE STATE? THE LAWS, DO THEY NEVER SUPPORT THE STRONG AGAINST THE WEAK, FAVOR THE RICH AGAINST THE POOR, UPHOLD THE HAPPY AGAINST THE MISERABLE? In short, is it an uncommon spectacle to behold crime frequently justified, often applauded, sometimes crowned with success, insolently triumphing, arrogantly striding over that merit which it disdains, over that virtue which it outrages? well then in societies thus constituted virtue can only be heard by a very small number of peaceable citizens a few generous souls who know how to estimate its value who enjoy it in secret for the others it is only a disgusting object they see in it nothing but the supposed enemy to their happiness or the censor of their individual conduct in the tenth chapter which is upon the soul the author says the diversity in the temperament of man is natural the necessary source of the diversity of passions of his taste of his idea of happiness of his opinions of every kind thus this same diversity will be the fatal source of his disputes of his hatreds of his injustice every time he shall reason upon unknown objects but to which he shall attach the greatest importance he will never underestimate either himself or others in speaking of a spiritual soul or of immaterial substances distinguished from nature he will from that moment cease to speak the same language and he will never attach the same ideas to the same words what then shall be the common standard that shall decide which is the man that thinks with the greatest justice propose to a man to change his religion for yours he will believe you a madman you will only excite his indignation elicit his contempt he will propose to you in his turn to adopt his own peculiar opinions After much reasoning, you will treat each other as absurd beings, ridiculously opinionated, pertinaciously stubborn, and he will display the least folly who shall first yield. But if the adversaries become heated in the dispute which always happens, when they suppose the matter important, or when they would defend the cause of their own self-love from thence their passions sharpen they grow angry quarrels are provoked they hate each other and end by reciprocal injury it is thus that for opinions which no man can demonstrate we see the brahman despised the mohammedan hated the pagan held in contempt that they oppress and disdain each with the most raucous animosity the christian burns the jew at what is called an auto da fe because he clings to the faith of his fathers the roman catholic condemns the protestant to the flames and makes a conscience of massacring him in cold blood this reacts in his turn something the various sects of christians league together against the incredulous turk and for a moment suspend their own bloody disputes that they may chastise the enemies to the true faith then having glutted their revenge return with redoubled fury to wreak over again their infuriated vengeance on each other The thirteenth chapter argues as follows against the doctrine of the immortality of the soul and a future state. In old age man extinguishes entirely, his fibers become rigid, his nerves lose their elasticity, his senses are obtunded, his sight grows dim, his ears lose their quickness, his ideas become unconnected, his memory fails, his imagination cools what then becomes of his soul alas it sinks down with the body it gets benumbed as it loses its feeling becomes sluggish as this decays in activity like it when enfeebled by years it fulfils its functions with pain this substance which is deemed spiritual which is considered immaterial which it is endeavoured to distinguish from matter undergoes the same revolutions experiences the same vicissitudes submits to the same modifications as does the body itself in despite of this proof of the materiality of the soul of its identity with the body so convincing to the unprejudiced some thinkers have supposed that although the latter is perishable the former does not perish that this portion of man enjoys the especial privilege of immortality that it is exempt from dissolution free from those changes of form all the beings in nature undergo in consequence of this man is persuaded himself that this privileged soul does not die It will be asked, perhaps, by what road has man been conducted to form to himself gratuitous ideas of another world. I reply that it is a truth man has no idea of a future life. They are the ideas of the past and the present that furnish his imagination with the materials of which he constructs the edifice of the regions of futurity hobbes says we believe that that which is will always be and that the same causes will have the same effects man in his actual state has two modes of feeling one that he approves another that he disapproves thus persuaded that these two modes of feeling must accompany him even beyond his present existence he placed in the regions of eternity two distinguished abodes one destined to felicity the other to misery the one must contain those who obey the calls of superstition who believe in its dogmas the other is a prison destined to avenge the cause of heaven on all those who shall not faithfully believe the doctrines promulgated by the ministers of a vast variety of superstitions has sufficient attention been paid to the fact that results as a necessary consequence from this reasoning which on examination will be found to have rendered the first place entirely useless seeing that by the number and contradiction of these various systems let man believe whichever he may let him follow it in the most faithful manner still he must be ranked as an infidel as a rebel to the divinity because he cannot believe in all, and those from which he dissents, by a consequence of their own creed, condemn him to the prison-house. Such is the origin of the ideas upon a future life, so diffused among mankind. Everywhere may be seen an Elysium, and a Tartarus, a Paradise, and a Hell in a word two distinguished abodes constructed according to the imagination of the enthusiasts who have invented them who have accommodated them to their own peculiar prejudices to the hopes to the fears of the people who believe in them the indian figures the first of these abodes as one of inaction of permanent repose because, being the inhabitant of a hot climate, he has learned to contemplate rest as the extreme of felicity. The Musulman promises himself corporeal pleasures, similar to those that actually constitute the object of his research in this life. Each figures to himself that on which he has learned to set the greatest value as for the miserable abode of souls the imagination of fanatics who were desirous of governing the people strove to assemble the most frightful images to render it still more terrible fire is of all things that which produces in man the most pungent sensation not finding anything more cruel the enemies to the several dogmas were to be everlastingly punished with this torturing element fire therefore was the point at which their imagination was obliged to stop the ministers of the various systems agreed pretty generally that fire would one day avenge their offended divinities thus they painted the victims to the anger of the gods or rather those who questioned their own creeds as confined in fiery dungeons as perpetually rolling into a vortex of bituminous flames as plunged in unfathomable gulfs of liquid sulphur making the infernal caverns resound with their useless groanings with their unavailing gnashing of teeth but it will perhaps be inquired how could man reconcile himself to the belief of an existence accompanied with eternal torments above all as many according to their own superstitions had reason to fear it for themselves many causes have concurred to make him adopt so revolting an opinion in the first place very few thinking men have ever believed such an absurdity when they have deigned to make use of their reason or when they have accredited it this notion was always counterbalanced by the idea of the goodness by a reliance on the mercy which they attributed to their respective divinities in the second place those who were blinded by their fears never rendered to themselves any account of these strange doctrines which they either received with awe from their legislators or which were transmitted to them by their fathers in the third place each sees the object of his terrors only at a favorable distance moreover superstition promises him the means of escaping the tortures he believes he has merited we conclude by quoting the following eloquent passage o nature sovereign of all beings and ye her adorable daughters virtue reason and truth remain forever our reverend protectors it is to you that belong the praises of the human race to you appertains the homage of the earth show us then o nature that which man ought to do in order to obtain the happiness which thou makest him desire virtue animate him with thy beneficent fire reason conduct his uncertain steps through the paths of life truth let thy torch illumine his intellect dissipate the darkness of his road banish error from our mind wickedness from our hearts confusion from our footsteps cause knowledge to extend its salubrious reign goodness to occupy our souls serenity to dwell in our bosoms let our eyes so long either dazzled or blindfolded be at length fixed upon those objects we ought to seek dispel forever those mists of ignorance those hideous phantoms together with those seducing shimmerers which only serve to lead us astray extricate us from that dark abyss into which we are plunged by superstition overthrow the fatal empire of delusion crumble the throne of falsehood wrest from their polluted hands the power they have usurped end section 21 of ancient and modern celebrated freethinkers read for you by ted delorme in fort mill south carolina